That's our new series called Questions. Uh, really good questions. There are no bad questions. You remember uh, maybe a teacher saying that. They meant it, I think. Questions say more about us than almost anything else. Here's some questions from children. Dear God, did you make the giraffe like that on purpose or was it an accident? I went to a wedding and they kissed right in the church. Is that okay? Dear God, how can you love everybody? There are only four people in my house and I have trouble doing that. When kids get older, when they become older students, their questions get a little bit more challenging. Uh, I used to do a seminar uh, every year uh, at a camp uh, for teenagers, and I would ask them this question, this prompt. If you could ask God anything, what would you ask? And I, sta- I, I collected a stack of questions over the years of 3 by 5 cards. I'd hand out 3 by, by, by 5 cards. They'd write them down, and I'd read them to them. I'm going to read a few to you right now. Why do bad things happen? Can God read our minds? Did Adam and Eve have belly buttons? That was a real question. It's a challenging question, too. Is war wrong since the Bible says not to kill? Why did God make mosquitoes? Yeah, inevitable question. Questions. The reason why there are no bad questions, and the reason why we're putting their questions right at the center of this next series, is that behind every question is a questioner. Behind every question is a questioner. We're going to look over the next three weeks at the questions that come up time and time again, the big three questions. These are the big three questions of philosophy. These are the big three questions of generations. These are the big three questions that come up again and again and again. Who am I? Where do I fit? And what difference can I make? They come up in different forms. But these questions are perpetually asked generation to generation. But the way that they're asked, the way that they're asked in, in, in this generation is what we're looking at. How do they ask these questions? And to consider their questions and how they ask them is to take a step towards them the way that Jesus took a step towards us. Today, we're asking the big question. Who am I? A question of identity. From the Word of God, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. Hear God's Word this morning. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people... For his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. May God bless us through this, his holy word. Let us pray. God, bless us now through your word, not only to our minds to understand, but to our hearts to believe that through our lives we may live. In Jesus' name, amen. I've noticed that young people want to be part of something bigger. 
We all do. But when they're asking questions of identity, time and time again, they're looking for the answers in terms of being part of something bigger than themselves. There's an instinct, a good one, that says, I am not just my own. I want to be part of something bigger. And so a lot of times the way they, they try to answer this question is, is through work. You know, that's the second question we ask everybody is, you know, after your name, what do you do? And so young people try to find their way, find their sense of identity in their work, in what they do. And we discover sometime in the middle of life that this is not a satisfactory answer. Sometimes people try to find their identity through their imagination. They want to be part of some greater effort, human progress, for example. And so the space program often captures people's imaginations. And they, they, they begin to say you know, things like, when I grow up, I want to be an, an astronaut, right? And sometimes people want to be a part of a movement, especially when they're younger and they see that there are injustices in the world or they were, they were told that these people are just entirely bad and they realize that, that, that the world is a little bit more complicated and the bad people aren't all bad and the good people aren't all good. And so they want to see something reconciled. They want to see the world a little bit more fair and they want to be a part of a bigger movement. But the greatest movement that we can offer to students is the movement that has changed the course of history and shaped the Western world. And that is that we are not our own. That we belong to God. And so today, let's capture our own imagination. That we may engage with people in this question. Along the lines of belonging. Why does belonging, why is it so compelling? Why, why should we expect and be confident that it's so compelling to young people? Because young people are looking for their people, right? Young people are looking for a greater promise. And young people are truly looking for the presence of God, not just here, but everywhere. So let's look at the way that we're part of something bigger through belonging. First, when you belong, when you recognize that you belong to God, you don't just find God. When you surrender your life to Him, when, when, when you say, okay, I belong to you, Lord, you also find your people. You find your people. It's so, so important when you think of of drop, like we've dropped off a, our, our youngest at, at college, and one of the big things that we were thinking of when we drove away is we hope he finds his people, right? And when they do, when they find friends, it's just, you just feel like, okay, we can breathe again, you know? It's just, okay, all right, that's good. Finding your people is so crucial. I mean, the, the, the thing that, that makes people more depressed than anything else, you know, loneliness is considered to be the new smoking in terms of how bad it is for your health. And when you look at what the scriptures say about who you are, about belonging to God, you, you may say, you know, I'm not sure that I see a lot of encouragement there because that, that seems sort of like confining. You are a royal priesthood? What is that? A holy nation? A people of God's own possession? That seems confining. That seems constraining. Well, yes, it is. You know... If you think about the way an airplane flies and the principles that make it fly, the principles that free it from gravity to be able to take off, it's very specific. It's very narrow. The principles are very confining. Someone said that whoever makes themselves slave to the compass can have the freedom of the sea. 
And so understanding ourselves as belonging to God is the greatest freedom that can be yielded because that's the freedom for which we were designed. Those are the constraints that yield our greatest freedom. I love how Chesterton puts it. He says, you know, if, if you're free to draw a giraffe with a short neck, then you're not actually free to draw a giraffe at all. <laughs> I mean, you know, if you're free to draw a triangle with four sides, then you've really not been free to draw a triangle. Proverbs 29, 18. You know, that's, that's one of those verses that, that begins to work against this whole process. It says, without vision, the people cast off all restraint. See, there's a vision of belonging that also is a vision belonging to each other. There's a vision of belonging to God that sets us free to belong to each other. Prior to the cross, this world was so depraved and so tribal and so much in conflict and so much about the strong eating the weak. We have no idea how beneficial it is to live post-cross, to live in an age of the kind of construction and peace and flourishing. We have no idea. We have no idea just how fortunate we are to have the benefit of Christianity working on this world for the last 2,000 years. And, and yet, young people, young people are seeing associations with Christianity that aren't quite Christianity. And so they begin to look at, at, at the way the world is unfair and they want to be a part of a movement that makes it more fair. And one of the ways, one of the most popular things that's going on right now have to do with your personal pronouns. And so the idea here is that, that greater freedom comes when people are free even to choose their own gender. And we have to ask ourselves, does this yield greater freedom? Now, so, so some people mean this out of compassion. They identify and they, 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 they even post their, their pronouns on social media. Even if you know, they're 70 years old and they've been known as a male all their life and they post you know, he, he and him. Okay, thanks for clearing that up for us, grandfather. We appreciate that. But the whole thing here, now I know that's funny, but I, I, and I, and I, I intended it to be funny, but, but, but this is not to mock people who are confused with their gender. I, I think that the value here of what I see, the value of people doing this, is that they really do intend to have uh, compassion for people who are confused. They do intend to, to, to proclaim some solidarity, and I think that's a, that's a very compassionate and good instinct. But there's another side of this. And there are a lot of people who don't have any compassion for people who have confusion about their, their gender. They don't, have any con they, they don't have any compassion. They're actually exploiting their confusion in order to create greater chaos because they simply want permission. They simply want to take apart tradition. They want to take apart anything that smacks of constraints or anything that confines because they believe, they are misled to believe 
that if we cast off all constraints, then we'll have greater freedom. Well, let's have airplanes without wings then. Let's have triangles with four sides. Let's have giraffes with short necks. You see, the greatest freedom that we have to offer, the greatest freedom, is the freedom of our intended desire that God made us for himself. You are not your own, and that's very good news, especially for anybody who's confused with their gender, for example. But unfortunately, sometimes the way we deal with this, we call Christianity, whether you're on the liberal side of the, the equation or on the conservative side of the equation, we call one of these two camps Christianity, and it's not. You know, it's so easy just to beat up on people who are confused because, because of the, the, the politics of exploiting that confusion to, to wreak havoc in the culture. And I, I understand that. I feel that, too. I, I recognize that, that this whole question is wreaking havoc, and it is drawing in people who don't have confusion about their gender when they're young. You know, every student, you know, every human being goes through phases, and when their hormones are raging, there are all kinds of messages that get sent that are confusing, and this is not a healthy thing for them. And so I have great compassion, not just for the people who, are, who, who have confusion about their own gender, but the people who are, who, who are being misled. We have to be concerned about that as well. And the people who are misleading them on purpose, I have no compassion for them. But that doesn't mean that I'm just going to opt for social conservatism and just lob grenades at those people. On the other hand, sometimes people think, well, you know, the whole thing is, and this is the liberal side of the equation, I, I hate these terms, but we're kind of stuck with them for now, is that, that you just affirm people and whatever they feel is what they are, as though that will yield for them the greatest freedom. And it's not so. Who has not been misled by their feelings? Why would you set people adrift in the sea without a compass? Why would you try to help people to achieve airspeed velocity without wings? You see, we have the greatest message and the most encouraging message is that you are not your own. You belong to God. And we should want this not from people as though we're threatened in some holy huddle. We should not want this from the culture. We should want it for people who are confused, for people who are being misled. You see, this is a movement that has transformed Western civilization. And so when we're in tune with God, when when we belong to God and we are in tune with what he wants for us and we begin to order our lives around that, guess what happens? When a thousand pianos are tuned to the same fork, they're also in tune with each other. And this is the relative peace and stability that Christianity has brought to the world. Now, so you say, well, Tim, what about people who who don't, who, who reject this? What about people who are living apart from, from this belonging? Well, this is the step two, and, and this is 
the second step of helping young people engage and say, you know, this idea of belonging is a compelling thing. It's the very thing that you're concerned about, young people. You're concerned about people being outsiders, and you don't want to think of yourself as the insider with all sorts of other people being excluded because, because what we're called to next, and this is a little different order from what's in your bulletin outline, is that we're called to not just a bigger people because we belong to God, but to a bigger promise. That is, that God, in inviting us to be a part of who he is and what he's doing, we're called to be a part of his invitation his invitation, an invitation to this promise to belong to him. Verse 10, it says this, once you were no people and now you are God's people. You can hear in that the echo because it is a quote from Hosea. What's powerful here is that the people of God doing the inviting are ones who have experienced their own need for God, their own rejection that they rejected God and yet have received mercy. Hosea was asked to, to, to marry a prostitute. I know that's a crazy thing for, for God to ask uh, a prophet to do. It seems kind of crazy, but he did so in order to make a, a powerful and personal point to show Israel just how personal it is for us to betray God for us to turn our back on God, he had Hosea marry someone who was unfaithful, who would be unfaithful to him, and to continue to welcome her back and welcome her back and welcome her back. And they could see this. This was a public person. This was some of the heart and center of their life together. And they could see his grace. And in seeing that story lived out, God was telling the story, our story, of people who rejected who rejected God, who were accepted by him, even though we rejected him. That's the invitation. Not that we're the saints and they're the sinners. Not that you're sinners and you can come and be saints like us, right? But it's to say, look, we once were no people. We know what it's like to be apart from God, to live apart from God. We know what it's like to be accepted by him, not on our own merit, but on the promise Inviting people to a promise. You know, I, I think of this, I illustrate this this way. I think of this, um, but when The Passion came out, the, uh, the Passion of Christ, the movie that Mel Gibson produced and, and, uh, and starred in, um, he was criticized because it, it's the, the same old saw that whenever you talk about Jesus' crucifixion, there's going to be a group out there who, who feels like this is anti-Semitic, that, that this is excluding Jews, that this is a message against the Jews. And what's, what's amazing is, that um, I, I don't think Mel Gibson anticipated this, but he just simply told the truth. He said, you know, the hands that nailed, the, in the scene, the hands that nailed Jesus to the cross were my hands. Mel Gibson wanted his hands to be the hands that drove the nail through the wrists, through the ankles the feet because he recognized he was the one who betrayed he was the one who rejected and the powerful thing is the powerful thing is that the invitation is to recognize hey we're all beggars at the cross 
We are all beggars at the cross. But here's a more powerful part of this story. When young people are concerned about Christianity being somehow a holy huddle or somehow excluding people, what are we, we have to ask ourselves the question, what are we inviting people to do? When, when, when we're inviting people to look at the faith, what are we inviting them to do? We're inviting them to look into the eyes of Jesus Christ, who looked into the face of every one of us who rejected him, and looked up to God and said, Forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. This is the invitation. There is no more compelling invitation. There's no more compelling invitation. Father, forgive them. We're calling people to recognize the need for a greater promise. We're inviting them as ones who have found bread. Beggars who have found bread. Come, find bread. Finally, this. <laughs> when, when, we, when we consider young people's question, who am I? How do I find my identity? And we answer it with the scriptures. You know, as the Heidelberg Catechism says, that you are not your own. I only comfort in life and in death. You are not your own. I'm not my own. But belong. We belong then. And in belonging, in belonging, we recognize that when we belong to God, all God's creation, all of God's creation is in play. We're not just a part of a holy huddle. We're not just a part of some, you know, some exclusive membership-only group. We're part of God's greater creation. Abraham Kuyper, a great Dutch uh, reformer, said this, There is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. It all belongs to him. It all belongs to him. And so when verse 9 says, you are called out of darkness into his marvelous light, you're called to see all things in light of the truth. All things. What is it to see in light of the truth? It's to have his special revelation, that is, that is, his revealed truth through the word, but it's also to recognize, as in Roman one, Romans 1, that we have impressed upon us this sense of the way we should see the world, and that is that God made it, that we belong to someone else, not our own. To see in light of truth is to see that, that creation is his, and we're part of it. And we're invited into it. It's to, to look at the world through a certain lens, increasingly made clear through the scriptures, increasingly made clear as we look around and see and apply the scriptures. Sometimes, you know, I, I love to say this, and, and I, I think I, I experience it so often that life is lived forwards, but it's understood backwards. Now apply this to the special revelation. A lot of times we have to, we have to live the trust in these scriptures forwards, and then we understand them backwards. It's to begin to see things, the whole of life, not, not as some sort of 
patchwork quilt of this is sacred and this is profane or this is holy and set apart and this is, this is common and, and this, is, this is secular. But to see that all of life is being redeemed and to have a vision for all of life has implications on, on your politics. It has implications on the way you spend your time. The idea that, that God is redeeming all of creation has implications, has ramifications for the way we live our lives. And man, what a compelling vision to invite young people to, to be a part of God's great creation and his renewal of it. The weight of glory says it better than I, I could ever say it. He says this, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it, I see everything else. Let me read that again. I believe in Christianity as I believe in the, that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it, I see everything else. The invitation to belong is this. What is your only comfort in life and in death? My only comfort in life and in death is that I am not my own, but I belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who with his precious blood has fully paid for all my sins. This is our identity. It is as compelling an identity as you can even imagine. To belong to God is to belong to a people of God is to belong to an inviting people of God who are engaged not just with the church, but with the whole world. Let's pray together. Gracious God, our Heavenly Father, how we thank you for the vision of life restored, life renewed. Lord God, we pray that we would not move towards questions and questioners as threatening this. How could they threaten? Lord, but to move with confidence towards a culture that has found increasing ways to reject the truth, to cut off the wings, to add sides to triangles. Lord, we have the truth. Help us to walk in it as marvelous light.